talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Lisa Poleski and Dave Woodard are in the newsroom. Will Erskine is on the board. Omricon is everywhere. Be calm and vaccinate on and fix Canada's broken health care system. Here's Scott Thompson! I think he blew a tire because he's going across the finish line there. Hey! Good afternoon. It is 3.08. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers get on the board in the newsroom. Lisa Poleski and Dave Woodard, who'll be joining us around the big round table coming up after the 4.30 news. Lisa Poleski picks the song. Hey, that's a busy little ditty, isn't it, Lisa? My goodness. Yeah. Tell, us the, tell us the story, the history, all that sort of stuff. Well, I don't know if the necessarily the history of the band, but that's the Go Team, and uh, they've been around since about 2000, and their, their music is just so good for getting me pumped up and like when it whenever i actually do work out i they're really good <laughs> they're a good soundtrack for that i recommend them well, for it I, I can i can hear you saying when i do work out but after the uh, workout with that man you've been exhausted for about three months my goodness uh excellent choice and as you said man gets your attention and uh gets you standing at attention uh lisa and dave joining us around the big round table coming up in about uh, an hour and a half after the 4 30 news and uh can't wait to hear what they have to say about the issues of the day uh and if you would like to contribute you can throw a issue onto the table or whatever you'd like for that matter at uh uh, 905-645-3221, start 9900 on your cell, or send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And man, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of ethical stuff to talk about today. Uh, and, and especially the story, uh, coming out of, uh, Quebec. We talked about this yesterday, but it's the poll question of the day, uh, today, which you can find on our Twitter pages. Uh, adults in Quebec, anti-vaxxers will be taxed and should Ontario do the same? 60% said yes. Uh, my goodness. You know what I think we're forgetting about all of this as we, you know, let's be honest. We've got in Ontario close to 90% of the eligible population, 12 plus, uh, double vaxxed. Uh, let alone singled, uh, but the kids are still sitting at below 50% between 5 and 11 because, and you can see why, uh, parents would be more hesitant about giving it to those 5 to 11 than those uh, that are above that, or teenagers, or even adults for that matter. So, um, y- again, um, what are you going to, you're going to force the kids to get vaccinated? Because as we as we hit to the last 10% of the population vaccinated, that's really who's left other than those that are anti-vaxxers, won't have anything to do with it, and those that can't do it for religious reasons or medical reasons or what have you. So, um, you know, I, I think we're, we're forgetting the role that the kids will play in this, especially when you try to get 100% of the population vaccinated again everyone go out and vaccinated get boosted get it all we're all you know can't can't support it enough but again you're trying to do something that is impossible to do and even if 100 percent of canadians that's east to west not just ontario but east to west even if you got 100 percent of canadians vaccinated our health care our health care system would still be in shambles. So I think what a lot of federal politicians are doing right now is distracting away from the fact that they're trying to get the last few points vaccinated and 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 go for it. 
but neglecting what the real issue is, and this is our healthcare system that's collapsing under the weight of a Omicron variant that isn't as dangerous, but highly transmissible. And I don't think that's acceptable to Canadians. And I think it's time that the federal government stops blaming the provinces, because when this all started, it was a 50-50 deal. Now, as uh, former Premier uh, Kathleen Wynne said on this show yesterday, somewhere between 22-23% of what uh, the government has to pay, the Ontario government has to pay for health care, comes from the feds. They've walked away from it. And yet they keep telling the provinces, that they have to do something while making the check smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And you got to wonder with daycare. They say, you know, we're getting everybody, we're going to meet you halfway on daycare. For how long? Then it becomes like the Medicare system. And you slowly start pulling back and leave it all on the responsibility of the provinces. And now we have Quebec saying, hey, you don't get jabbed, we're going to tax you. What is that? I mean, it's not, you know, I understand where the passion's coming from. I understand where, you know, the need is coming from. But we eradicated polio without any of this. So, like, like it's it's insane, the slippery slope that we're heading down. Who, again, Premier, former Premier Wynn said yesterday, I don't agree with that. And I don't see a Premier across any uh, provinces that is agreeing with this. Uh, is this what it's become? And, you know, over and above the legal ramifications of it all, do we really understand what we're doing? You know, people say, well, the kids, they all got to be, well, they're not. Matter of fact, there's less kids vaccinated in schools than there are uh, for the uptake of COVID-19 vaccine. They're supposed to be, but there's always exceptions. And that's what we have here. So as we try to get the last 10% of the population vaccinated, I'm not sure, and let's, for, and let's not uh, forget, only 47% of the kids 5 to 11, and that's not because it's not available, it's because there's people that are hesitant, even more so with the younger kids, and that's fully understandable. You're going to tax them too? You're going to tax their parents? And the federal government's just standing there going, oh, you know, the Prime Minister said today, it's up to you guys to figure out how you do it. Wow. How about some leadership here? How about standing up for the Constitution? For the charter. It's incredible when you think about it. Uh, article in the National Post today from Tasha Carradine, the unvaccinated must be deterred from harming others. Uh, we certainly know where Quebec is going on all of this. Uh, where do you find the balance? Let's bring in Tasha Carradine, principal at Navigator and a lecturer with the Max Bell School of Public Policy, McGill University, and with us now. Tasha, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you. I hope you are, too. So where do we go from here, Tasha? Because I don't know, I, I sort of had an epiphany last weekend and I could see kind of the, the discussion changing that this is no longer about the dangers of a COVID-19 a variant called Omicron and more about a collapsing healthcare system, which is buckling under the pressure of so many getting it because it's so, so transmissible. Uh, even if we get a hundred percent of Canadians vaccinated, uh, we're not going to fix that problem is are, are we banging are, are we beating a dead horse here trying to get the last five to ten percent of the population vaccinated considering maybe five will never because they're anti-vaxxers and another five have an excuse of some sort 
Well, yeah, it's not just those people because that you're you're talking about the adult population and there's kids too. I mean, yep. the actual numbers in Canada, I think it's 77% of us are completely jabbed. Um, but because there are children who have not received a vaccine, the vaccine uptake for five ten, for, to 11 year olds is quite low. It is it's not- about 47%, I think, now in Ontario. So, yeah, it is quite low. So, how do yeah. we deal with that? Well, this is the thing. Um, and it's it's not you're right it is not about will we uh, you know completely avoid omicron um estimates are probably all of us will be exposed or get it in some form vaccinated double vaxxed or not it is the fact that it is this crush at the same time and that the healthcare system cannot handle it and it's not the people with covid who are the only ones suffering here the ones in the icu it is all the people yeah. who have been kicked out of the healthcare system because it can't provide them the surgeries they were scheduled for the cancer treatment It's also for people who work in the healthcare system, you know, no one really, people, you see articles from time to time of like nurses and doctors at their wits end, but don't we care about them? Don't we care about these people? I mean, and I say this to unvaccinated people, don't you care that these people are burnt out to a crisp? And when you look at the numbers, you're 10 times more likely to be in ICU if you are unvaccinated six times more likely to be in the hospital. I mean, those numbers don't lie. They are there. The reality is that the excess capacity of the hospital or the excess on the capacity is caused by the fact that disproportionately, those 10% you talked about, people um, are getting severely ill with this. Uh, the rest of us who got two doses in the booster are getting sick. We're getting sore throats. We're not likely ending up. Some, some are older people. You know, if you're 80 years old or more, you're still a risk of, of, of being in ICU, but most people aren't. So it, it frustrates me no end. And I think where, where we go from here is basically, like I said, um, it's not protecting us from getting it. It's protecting society from the effects of what the unvaccinated are doing to it. And so I believe in vaccine mandates. I believe in the restrictions that have been put in. And um, otherwise, people are, are simply going to say, oh, well, it's OK not to be vaccinated. And they'll just free ride off the rest because that's what this is. It is a free riding off all the people who've made the responsible social choice to be vaccinated. And I say that without responsibility, without without duty there is no liberty they go hand in hand i i agree with everything you're saying i i i agree that uh this is you know it's our responsibility to take care of others you talked about the healthcare system the staff of the healthcare system who are have just been beat up through this and now we're asking more of them and such but again it seems to me we're focusing all of our attention on Quebec's anti-vax tax or mm-hmm. uh, getting that last percentage of the people po- vaccinated or even the young kids where there is more hesitancy and understandably so, as opposed to fixing the system. Uh, you yeah, know, you're not going to fix it in two months. No, you're not going to fix it in two months. But, you know, you're looking at other countries that have a way, way less uptake of the vaccine than we do. And they're having the same issues that we are or even less. Like this isn't even a top story in the United States anymore. If you watch news, it's like the second or third or fourth story again, because they're 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 getting on with it and they have less vaccination than we do. So again, going bankrupt. Their hospitals are going bankrupt in the United States because they can't handle the situation. No one's writing about that here. But you look, you'll find articles about that. You'll also find articles about the fact that, yeah, the the Americans are much more blasé, um, you know, to the point where you see people holding signs saying, you know, let the weak die. 
Uh, I don't personally want to live again, with that. Tasha. There's, you know, <laughs> I, I don't want to, Tasha. I don't want to take this to the extremes because that's unfortunately where it is now, and unfortunately, we don't get a solution out of that. I know. Uh, it, it seems that again, uh, you look at the prime minister hammering at the provinces, hammering at the provinces, and even one minister saying, "Oh, they should consider mandatory uh, vaccination and such." Where, like, seriously, it, it's never been done. It, it's not done here. We got through polio without doing this. It's through education. And again, it seems to me that the push to get people vaccinated, absolutely, I'm all in. I'm double vaxxed. Our family is. We've we've suffered with it. We've been through it. So, uh, But it seems that we're focusing on that last couple of percentage points who will never get vaccinated, and we're ignoring the fact that the federal government used to pay for half this, and now it pays for less than 25% of it. So even if we got everyone vaccinated in Canada, Canada, tomorrow these problems would still be here. So should we really start focusing on upgrading our and, and changing the funding formula, whatever that is, whether it's a combination of private, and, and again, it's not going to the extremes like the U.S. is, but there's, there's a balance there. And it seems we're focusing on Band-Aids instead of fixing the problem. This is not the, uh, the pandemic it once was. It's changed with Omicron. It's becoming an endemic. There's lots of 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 uh, of uh, medical people that will say that it's got to end soon. So why aren't we focusing on the healthcare system? <laughs> I wish it would end soon. Uh, most people think it's a couple more years of this up and down stuff, and the end in sight. I agree. Eventually, it'll end. Cast your minds back, and we can't do it because we weren't alive then. But to 1918, okay, when the last global pandemic happened, um, it took I think it was three to four years to completely stomp out. And they didn't have any vaccines. They didn't have the measures we had today, the, the medications, the, you know, antivirals, nothing. It was flu. It was a different disease. Yes. But people were literally dropping dead one day to the next. It was it was brutal. Um, we're lucky that we have a vaccine. Imagine if we hadn't had mm-hmm. a vaccine at all. Imagine that where we were a year ago when they just started rolling them out. Uh, I wouldn't want to go back to there. And I think you're, I, I'm not disagreeing that we shouldn't look at our healthcare system. And it's not just funding. It's the fact that we have reduced the number of ICU beds per capita. We have one of the lowest in Canada in the world. You're absolutely right. That should change. We need to have an honest conversation in this country about how we fund healthcare, the involvement of the private sector. Why don't we have a mixed model like all European countries do, the entire OECD, except the US, where yes, the US, it's full on private with some for poorer people, Medicaid and that sort of thing. Whereas Canada, we're the opposite. We're like, oh, full on public. But the reality is we have a lot of private care here that we don't talk about, but we could have a much better organized system of private care, which allowed you know middle class people to have insurance through their work for things that are now done in the system that you can't do now because it's the Canada Health Act prohibits it. We need to have that conversation. But that conversation is, first of all, the political third rail. You ask any politician, they don't want to touch it. Second, it's a longer term conversation. This is going to be with us. It's in its acute phase right now for a couple of months, we know, but it will still be up and down for the next while. And yeah, we do have mandatory vaccination. If your kid isn't vaccinated, they can't go to public school in Ontario. There's exceptions so, for all of you know, that, Tasha. There's exceptions for all of that, though. I bet you 85% of the kids in my kids' school right now are vaccinated. I bet you the, the, the COVID-19 vaccination rate for adults is probably higher than the vaccination rate for kids because there's no, the exceptions. Exce- the exceptions there's there are very there's a lot of exceptions. There are very few exceptions. No, it's it's not quite the case. You can, and some people choose to keep their kids out of school and homeschool them for that very reason. 
they don't want to send them there. You can get exemptions, yes. But the point is, we're in a pandemic. And I think people lose sight of that. This isn't an attempt to, you know, subvert everyone's rights and uh, inject people with poison. I know it sounds like extreme, but this is the I've been getting, I will tell you a lot of reaction to my piece. And that's what I'm being told that that's what I'm pushing is that doomsday scenario. No, this is something we have to get through as a society for the next couple of years, hopefully not more than that. And then get back to some sense of endemicity, like you said, seasonal flu or whatever. And it will enable us to have a conversation about healthcare. But we do need to try and go that extra mile and say, you know what, everyone needs to do as much as they can. And this is what you can do. And if people are unwilling to do that, then there's, like I said, there's a social contract all of us have in terms of helping each other out. And if, you know, people, whatever, for whatever belief system they have, you can be a Christian, you can be non-religious. You can I got to cut you, you off. Ta- I've got to cut That's you okay. off there, Tasha. We're right you up against the wall. Love my neighbor and get your shot. <laughs> All right. Thank you. All right. Kids going from re- uh, remote learning back uh, to in-person uh, learning. Uh, it was funny. I was talking to my uh, grade nine uh, kid today, uh, yesterday rather, and, and we were chatting about going back and he is totally excited. I don't think I've seen him so excited to be going back to school, which, you know, not always the case with, uh, you know, boys in grade nine and such, but it shows you how much uh, they want the connection. They need the connection, uh, not only with the teachers, but the other uh, students as well. Let's bring in uh, Louis Volante, PhD, Professor Education Governance Policy Analyst uh, with Brock University and with us now. Louis, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you for having me. Yes, I'm well. Uh, we uh, obviously hear over and over again, it is best for the kids to be in school. Are you, uh, your feelings as they head back on Monday? Uh, are we heading in the right direction? Uh, it seems most are into it, but I- I'm sure some are apprehensive. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, I can't comment on the public health issues in terms of whether it's safe or it's not safe. And a lot of that also depends on, you know, the resources within schools in terms of ventilation and social distancing. But but from my perspective, kids going back into the classroom is always a good thing. I think, you know, um, Ontario students have been out of the classroom more so than any other students in North America. Um, And what we know from the research is internationally is that, you know, the longer they've been out of school in terms of face-to-face, the more likely they've lost in terms of academics. And then, of course, you know, academics is just one part of it, but you've mentioned it um, in the introduction in terms of students' mental health and physical well-being. And the research that's been done over the last um, 18 months is showing that um, results in those areas are particularly bleak with less than 5% of kids 5 to 11 years of age and less than 1% of kids 12 to 17 getting their required daily physical activity in. And then um, research from the hospital for sick kids has shown that during the first year of um, the pandemic, 70% of school-aged children were experiencing deterioration in one of six mental health domains like depression, anxiety. So when we think about those three things, academics, mental health, and physical well-being, um, it's kind of a no-brainer that students definitely are better off in a classroom than sitting in front of a computer screen for 225 minutes a day, which is, you know, that's, that's another issue we can talk about if we have time. 
Uh, it's been a couple of years, as you mentioned. Uh, what about long-term effect? Will this last forever, or will they bounce back once they get into a more normal situation? So can I ask a follow-up question? What, are you talking about learning here, or are you talking about physical and the mental health issues? Uh, touch on all, if you wish. Okay, so in terms of learning, it's going to be very difficult for us to actually put a number on it because that's usually dependent on actually having the measures in place. So the large scale, large scale assessment, the standardized tests that were suspended. But we do know in other parts of the world that students in some cases have lost between 20 and 30 percent over the 18 months in terms of just academic content, knowledge, uh, things of that nature. I'm not as concerned about that because, you know, students can make that up. I'm actually much more concerned about the mental health and the physical well-being because those are issues that we, we, we do know what that looks like. I, I just reported some of those results. So while we might be a little bit unsure about, you know, the academic implications, we definitely have some clarity in terms of physical health and well-being and mental health. And, and to be quite frank with you, it wasn't a rosy picture beforehand. We, you know, my colleagues who work in the area of physical health and well-being um, have reported on this issue way before the pandemic hit that kids weren't getting enough physical exercise and, and the implications of that. So um, I'm, I am somewhat cautiously optimistic in terms of the academic learning outcomes and students bouncing back in terms of what they've missed. I'm, I'm much more concerned around mental health and physical well-being. Uh, interesting, too, pointing out uh, weaknesses or weak links in the system uh, before the pandemic was even there. Uh, Louis Volante with us, Ph.D., Professor Education, Governance and Policy Analyst with Brock University. Louis, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Take care. Fascinating article in the Globe and Mail yesterday uh, by Robert Fife and Stephen Chase. Uh, the headline reads, Canada's spy agency warns MPs, members of parliament, to beware of the influence of operations from China. Uh, Canada's spy agency for the first time is warning individual MPs and senators from all major parties about influence operations being carried out by China and other adversarial states. Uh, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, CSIS, has become increasingly alarmed about the efforts by China and its agents to influence uh, relations with elected officials to gain sway over parliamentary debates and government decision-making. To talk more about all of this, Stephanie Carvin with us, Associate Professor, International Affairs at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University, and a former National Security Analyst for CSIS, author of the new book, Stand on Guard, uh, Reassessing Threats to Canada's National Security. Uh, Stephanie, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Thanks for having me on the show again. How is the Chinese Communist Party trying to influence members of parliament here? What are they doing? So uh, there's a number of things that are happening. Um, I think the thing that has perhaps prompted this outreach from CSIS was the uh, forthcoming, well, then the forthcoming um, federal election uh, back in 2021, and uh, concerns that there could be influence in a number of ways. And I think the kind of things that were 
used to thinking about when we talk about foreign interference activities is really online. I think a lot of people think of like Russian bots in the 2016 election. Um, and, and certainly there, there have been some reports of this. There's been reports of a candidate out in British Columbia by the name of, I believe, Kenny Chu, who um, it does seem that there was some kind of coordinated campaign that may have been targeting him. Now, this, that's not to say that it was, it was necessarily successful. It's hard to know. This is one of the problems with foreign interference. It's hard to know when these operations are successful. But um, And we also know that um, Chu did not put out a fairly robust response or, or didn't really raise any flags about it at the time. But that seems to have been one thing that, that, that actually did happen. But when we talk about foreign interference in Canada, I think one of the things we do look at is really there's a lot of in-person activities as well. And it's a little harder in the, the age of COVID. But, um, you know, before we would see things like, you know, inviting, um, you know, offering kind of lavish presents or trips. Um, flattery. There were some concerns there, um, I think, back in, in 2015, 2016 about campaign donations. That's actually much harder to do in Canada than some people think because of our election laws. Um, but uh, yeah, it's these kinds of things. And then finally, um, you know, I don't, I, I know always very cautious when we talk about these things, because um, right now, let's be honest, the um, you know, the Asian Canadian community in Canada has been targeted by hate crimes and things like this. So I want to be really careful with, with what I say here and, and just put that up front. That, you know, we shouldn't be scapegoating or pointing fingers. But, you know, there are concerns that there's attempts to influence the community um, by either trying to engage in kind of mass vote, um, ethnic block voting, or by trying to buy up um, Chinese language newspapers, for example, to either amplify certain messages or suppress certain messages. So these are these are all things we worry about from a clandestine foreign interference perspective. It's, it's not just online. It's not just in person. It's increasingly becoming this kind of hybrid mess that I think we need to take a bit more seriously. Uh, you said uh, this is not about the Canadian Chinese. Uh, this is not about uh, people. This is about the Chinese Communist Party. We want to make that uh, perfectly clear. Yeah. Uh, that being said, there still needs to be somebody here to influence. So why would Chinese Canadians jump on board this? Why would they be swayed by this uh, if their devotion is to Canada? Well, I don't think by and large they necessarily are. I think what we worry about from a national security perspective is um, is really two things. One is, um, you know, for people who come to Canada, new Canadians, they don't necessarily speak the language. They are probably consuming their news using, you know, Chinese language apps like Weibo and, and, and things like this. They may also be using, you know, Chinese language newspapers and news sources. And, and um, you know, when you use those things, uh, the Chinese government does have control. So they can amplify the narratives that they want to amplify and they can make sure that, you know, things that they don't like don't get published, that people don't even get to see them or hear the other side of the story. So I think that's one of the things we worry about. Um, but the second thing, and I think this is really important to keep in mind, is that from a national security perspective, it's, it's almost impossible to know how someone voted. And, and that's good. We don't want to know. You know, we don't want to sitting down and trying to study election polls and things like that. That's not a good use of anyone's time or resources. I think the thing that we have to focus on is the attempt. Right. So whether or not it's successful is not really um, what national security is meant to do. They're just supposed to look at in the first place. Well, why are these things taking place and why 
um, you know, and how can we stop it? Because that, that's what they can focus on and that's what they should focus on. Considering uh, the Chinese Communist Party has, has woven itself into every industry in this, in this country, it seems, education, medicine, technology, uh, what have you, how do we stop this influence of, of the Chinese Communist Party on elected Canadian, uh, Canadian elected officials? So, you know, I think I think we have to say, just to be clear, we don't want to have a new red scare or anything like that. So no. I, I think that this, these are all just concerns they are being raised, and I think it's good that we talk about them in an open and transparent way. Um, but I think there's a number of problems that we have in this country, and one of them is we just simply don't have a good understanding of the magnitude of the problem. It, it's really, really hard to know. And one of the problems is that um, whether it's a community, politician, anything like this, when, you know, something happens, A, they may not know it's happening. <laughs> That'd be the first problem. You know, they don't necessarily recognize it. This, you know, we call it clandestine foreign interference because it's clandestine. You, you don't necessarily know. The second thing is that, um, like, you know, let's say someone may be being threatened for having a point of view or for showing opposition. And, you know, there's been some interesting stories in, I believe it's the Toronto Star this week, about activists that are being targeted by Beijing. Mm-hmm. Um, they're being we've had many on the, We've had many on this show that have talked about it, yeah. Yeah, I know. It's, and that's a real problem. But the problem is when people are either hacked or there's threats of violence, they often call their local police department. And the problem there yeah. is that, like, you know, the police don't see the forest for the trees. They see little trees, but they don't see how this is kind of, they don't see the nationwide picture. And then on the other hand, you have an organization like CSIS, which, you know, is, you know, does collect information about this, but doesn't have a mandate to really do anything about it. So I think one of the things we need to do is, is a couple of things. One is we need to um, figure out where we, you know, how do we join up and connect these dots so that, you know, these reports of interference activities are actually collected in an area so we have a better understanding of what's happening so that people know how to come forward with this information and report it accordingly. And that would, I think, give us better statistics so we could connect the local to the national. The second thing we need to do is actually create I think some kind of agency which is responsible for then looking at this data and trying to understand best practices and how to counter it. We don't, we have, you know, um, on violent radicalization of violence, remember we were all talking about terrorism a few years ago? Well, we started up the, something called the Canada Center, um, which looks at, um, you know, trying to fund research and under, get a better understanding of the problem of violent extremism in this country. I think we kind of need something like the same thing, but for foreign interference. We need something hmm. that would basically collect the information, look at the information, and then help advise those agencies, whether local or national, which have some kind of role to play in this as to what they could be doing, trying to better coordinate action across the country, and then also perhaps being a place where communities that feel affected or politicians even could come forward and actually do something about it stephanie carbon with us carleton university former analyst for CSIS and author of the new book stand on guard reassessing threats to canada's national security stephanie as always thanks for the time be well thank you so much you're listening to the hamilton today podcast from 900 chml good afternoon table heads good to have you all here looking so good as usual hey hey hello I like Gonna the air start- drumming, Dave. There you go. Uh, we're going to start. 
We've did this yesterday, but we're going to start with it because it is, of course, the poll question of the day, which we do every day. Uh, should Ontario tax anti-vaxxers like they are going to in Quebec? 60% said yes. Uh, I want to play you a clip of the Prime Minister. He was asked earlier today what he thought of Quebec's idea of taxing those that do not get vaccinated. We have been assured uh, by uh, the Quebec government uh, that they uh, intend to stand by the principles and the rules around the Canada Health Act uh, as they move forward. So uh, we, uh, we continue to wait to look for details on this. The details will be important in how this works, uh, how it balances uh, the values and the rights that we all cherish as Canadians with the necessity of keeping people safe. All right, that sounds like a fence sitter to me. Uh, I, I'm not sure. Uh, all right, let's start with uh, you, Lisa. Are you surprised at the attention that this has received? What does it say that it has received such attention? What are your thoughts? Well, I think, I mean, we were saying yesterday that, you know, no one else in Canada or in North America has really gone down this road. It's very, uh, Dr. Kieran Moore said to, when he was asked about it today, I believe he said it was seems punitive. So it doesn't seem like Ontario is going to go down that route, um, despite our 62% people really wanting that and I think it's that whole thing of people who feel like they've done the right thing think that you know people who aren't making the same sacrifices deserve to be punished and I think that there's a mentality there that it's not fair but I don't I don't think we should be necessarily basing policy on that for sure it's a it does seem like quite an extreme although I definitely understand the frustration of healthcare workers who are burnt out and you know oh, yeah. that something like this is maybe you know it's paying for it's it's the cost of of burning out out those healthcare workers. Dave, what are your thoughts on all this? Are you surprised at the attention? This is literally getting worldwide attention. It really is, and it's a it's a novel approach, and I think it's interesting to see some of the poll numbers around this. I know the Toronto Sun posted a poll uh, this morning. Uh, something like 65% of Quebecers agree with the idea of a tax. Uh, around 60% of Ontarians think it's a good idea, um, but I think it's exactly that. It's just novelty and maybe even a little bit of a scare tactic on behalf of the Quebec government because if you look at this in terms of, and I'm not a lawyer and I've never played one on the radio, but uh, I don't think this is ever going to stand up to a charter challenge if it if one is made and one will be made. Uh, but it's it's something that I think is is meant to kind of say, listen, we can do this and we are, we will if you don't get vaccinated. And and hopefully, I think it, it's just one of those things that Premier Legault is hoping that will uh, incentivize people to get vaccinated who haven't yet. So do you think it's a scare tactic that they won't really use? Uh, you know what? I never say never when it comes to mm. government, but I don't under I if they do bring it in, there will be a charter challenge and it will be a long and drawn out um, legal battle over this. And I think by the time that it gets through the court system, uh, we won't be talking about vaccinations nearly as much as we are now. Are you surprised at the prime minister's reaction to what is Quebec is doing? No. I mean, it's it's one of those things. I mean, every time that the, the uh, prime minister is asked to weigh in on things that are provincial jurisdiction, he generally uh, kind of waffles on. I'm things. not sure whose jurisdiction this is, Dave. <laughs> I don't think this is anybody's jurisdiction. Well, true. But I mean, it's it's something that Quebec is trying to bring in. But any time that somebody uh, province tries to bring in an idea and the, and the prime minister is asked about it, he never really gives an opinion on it. Good g- point. Saying that it's it's up to the provinces to deal with these kinds of things. So it doesn't surprise me whatsoever in the reaction that the prime minister had today. 
Uh, are you surprised, Lisa, about the reaction or the PM's reaction? No, same thing as Dave said. I mean, the the PM's never going to take, especially for something so controversial and like thorny as this topic, he's not going to, you know, he's basically just going to say the prepared kind of statement. The, the thing he always does when he gets asked something like this. So no, it doesn't, doesn't surprise me. Will, your thoughts on this? You surprise the attention it's all getting. Uh, I think uh, surprise is a relative term that uh, we have to uh, allow for everyone's level of surprise uh, within. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> sorry. What are you, a politician? Uh, am I surprised about the reaction, the attention it's getting? No, because I think a lot of people have mixed feelings about this. I think a lot of people, you know, part of their brain is, is saying, you know what? we It's not right in that all this does is create a deeper entrenched us versus them mindset, which we already have enough of that in society. But at the same time, there's a lot of people who really part of them just wants to, yeah, get them, go jab them. Yeah, make it happen. And uh, I think there's an internal struggle that makes this rise to the forefront of people's minds around the world when they hear something like this. I think there's a lot of people who wish they could go ahead and do this, but know that, mm, no, we probably shouldn't. This probably isn't the route to go. Uh, again, I think this is all just a big distraction, uh, so we're not focusing on the real problem, which is a healthcare system which is collapsing. Uh, but you know my point there. All right. We all know that uh, COVID-19, the global pandemic, has delayed a lot of things in life, weddings, uh, everything, uh, including the chance for you to get your driver's test, your road test. Uh, now they're saying that because there's such a backlog uh, in the province, par- things like parallel parking and some of the other things we had to do and feared as a kid uh will be removed from the road test just to simply speed it up do you agree with this lisa we'll start with you um i mean i i'm trying to remember when i went for my tests i had to get my i had to take my g test three times because uh various Uh well no (laughs) it was mainly because i was like i heard it was hard to do in hamilton so first i went to burlington then i went (laughs) to guelph and that just ended up being even harder so yeah but i i don't even remember if i did parallel parking on my test if i did it wasn't memorable and i think i honestly learned to do it on youtube so um I don't think it will be missed. Uh, don't a lot of self-driving cars also have like a parallel parking option? Now? I don't know. That's that's out of my page. No, and, I don't and, have and a car at all. So. Obviously, you did well, Lisa, because uh, you don't remember it. So it must have worked out pretty good. Yeah, I just remember my driving instructor was so busy complaining about her own. She had like problems going on in her life. So she just oh. passed me because I was a good oh, listener, I think. <laughs> that's hilarious. So, yeah. Uh, Dave, parallel parking removed. Does it matter? Uh, I don't think it really matters all that much. Much for one, yeah, there's a lot of self-drive uh, parallel parking cars that are out there, and probably within the next five years, no one will need that skill anymore. Um, but also, yeah, I didn't have to parallel park when I did my driver's test. My wife says she didn't have to do it either. So I don't really think it's something that people are, are really worried about all that much uh, in terms of day-to-day. Now you don't even have to turn around to back up. So really, why, why, why would you need to uh, learn how to parallel park, I guess? Exactly. All right. Thank you, table heads. Lisa Pileski, Dave Woodard, and Will Erskine around the big round table. The Quebec vax tax, anti-vax tax, is, uh, is getting attention around the world. Uh, and the reason is because there's not many doing it. And, uh, you know, you have to ask yourself, if it's the right thing, does it get this much attention? Uh, the poll question of the day, adults in Quebec, anti-vaxxers will be taxed. Uh, do you agree? Should Ontario do the same? 60% of you are saying yes. Let's say, uh, bring in Peter Gray, professor of political science at McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. And thanks. 
How do you categorize a government that uh, says if you don't get a vaccination, uh, you will be charged? What would that fall under? Yeah, I don't know. One that's uh, kowtowing to popular pressure. <laughs> is no, but is it is that is that left? Is that right? Is that socialism? Is that is that authoritarian? What is that? Well, I mean, there's a there's a certain kind of authoritarian thing in there. If you're a libertarian, you probably don't want uh, governments telling you what to do and not to do. And uh, although it's you know using a lighter tool, uh, you know, we had the federal uh, minister of health saying that provinces should mandate vaccines. Uh, you know, Boy, that's easy for them to say, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it is easy for them to say. And, you know, to mandate it in a way would be to encourage some kind of fine or penalty if uh, people didn't get vaxxed. Uh, you know, this is a somewhat uh, less intrusive manner in a way where you just, you know, pay a price at the end of the year as opposed to going through, uh, you know, some aspect of the legal system. But, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's certainly uh, pushing much further than uh, any Canadian government has uh, so far during this pandemic. Is this even possible, uh, or is it, as you say, just a distraction? Well, I mean, you know, we'll see. They're trying to design it at the moment in the Quebec Finance Ministry. Uh, you know, presumably things like, you know, privacy officers may ask questions about, you know, whether health information should be uh, shared with the tax department and putting this together. It, you know, may also be kind of unwieldy and expensive to do, so that at the end of the day, uh, you know, it isn't really, uh, you know, that effective in terms of needing to, you know, process exemptions and things like that. Um, you know, so it's certainly not going to be a, a big revenue raiser. The question is, does it change behavior? Does it encourage people who have been uh, refusing to uh, get a vaccine to actually go out and do it in order to avoid a charge? And there, I think, you know, a lot of the public health experts are a bit uncertain whether it will have a huge impact. There's probably a few cases on the margins where it would have an impact, but in others, probably uh, not a great deal. Uh, are you surprised at the Prime Minister's reaction? He said we have to wait for the details. Well, yeah, I mean, in a way, uh, you know, there's a question. Will they really go forward with it, or is this just candy for the Premier in a way? Uh, you know, as you noted, you had, you know, 60% of the, uh, you know, respondents saying, yeah, this would be a good idea in Ontario and in other places, because I think there's a lot of people who look at a situation where, you know, about half the people in hospital in Quebec and it's probably not that different in Ontario as this goes forward, uh, you know, with uh, COVID or from the 10% who are unvaccinated. In other words, a greater vaccination would cut hospitalization almost in half uh, for that, uh, you know, which would then allow people who are having surgeries postponed and so on not to, to have to face that. So, I mean, I think there is uh, a majority sentiment against the minority of people who won't get vaccinated. And I wouldn't be surprised, you know, in the Ontario case. I mean, this might be candy for someone like Stephen Del Duca uh, to try and, and come forward and, and ride the wave of that unhappiness. So, yeah, I was why, talking... why would the Prime Minister wait? I think because he's not sure the go is really going to go forward with this. You know, is this just a political ploy or is it something he's really going to try to do? And if he does, then, uh, you know, are there any issues around rights that are, you know, properly taken care of? Or are there things that stand out that the Prime Minister will want to uh, not support? You were talking about the Liberal Party. We had uh, former Premier Kathleen Wynne on yesterday, and she was uh, said it was an extremely slippery slope to go down. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, you know, once you get the, the ability to do this, uh, why won't uh, politicians choose other scapegoated groups and claim that they have to pay an extra tax? You know, in this case, it's a bit easier to actually make the tax work because, you know, there's some kind of public record about who is and who isn't vaccinated as opposed to, say, you know, taxing, uh, you know, people who choose certain kind of lifestyle choices or, 
you know, engage in risky uh, weekend sports and things like that. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think it's a way that politicians, if this passes muster, might go and, you know, begin choosing groups or uh, behaviors that are, you know, not necessarily that popular with the public and then use them as a way to, again, to, to, to go after scapegoats. So it's less about actually trying to raise money or, you know, change behaviors and to, you know, rile up a majority against a minority. Or even fix the real problem, which is a health care system which has an in- inadequate funding formula. Is this a distraction for the Prime Minister? Instead of fixing that funding formula, which used to see 50% of, of the cost paid by the federal government, now that's down below 25% and then blames the provinces. Is this all just smoke and mirrors to avoid correcting the real problem? Because even if we got 100% of us vaccinated, you still got the same health care issues. Uh, yeah, in part. I mean, I think any case where you have a pandemic, you're going to have surges. And, uh, you know, if we actually had a healthcare system that had the capacity to, to deal with those surges, then people would be complaining that we had all this redundant capacity done, so we didn't have it. And mm. what a waste of money. So, you know, in a way, we're not always that consistent with that. But it is true that, uh, you know, in the recent, uh, you know, since about 2014 or so, uh, yeah, the federal government has been reducing uh, its share of spending in the healthcare system, and that has had some knock-on effects in terms of the capacity, you know, to maintain sufficient capacity. So even before you know COVID came along, we did have those stories about you know be health health uh, hallway healthcare, you know, here in Hamilton. Yeah. And so yeah, I mean, there's a there's a longer-term issue there where people probably should be uh, calling the federal government to account and, and say, uh, you know, there needs to be a bigger financial stake. You know whether the sort of the size of the check that the premiers are asking for is the correct size. I mean that's that's another question. But you know, the, you know, the federal government can sit pretty. Uh, I think in this situation, in in that that question is not really being asked much. Peter Graff, and I I I, I don't understand why. Uh, Peter Graff, professor of political science, McMaster University. As always, Peter, thank you so much for your time. Be well. All right, a little earlier on, we uh, uh, heard a news conference from Education Minister Stephen Lecce and Ontario's top doc, Dr. Kieran Moore, talking about heading back to class on Monday. Let's bring in Manny Figueredo, Director of Education at the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board, and is with us now. Manny, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, Scott. Uh, Thanks for the time as well. Uh, the last time we chatted, Manny, uh, we were talking about tracing and tracking and how much uh, work that was. I think we kind of covered it, but it seems this still seems to be an issue uh, in regard to uh, tracking and tracing and notifying kids and such. You were talking last time we spoke about how how it's, we just don't have the manpower to do this um, and the capacity now or the capacity to do all of this, and especially with so many uh, people now testing positive for this. Uh, but but let me ask you this. Uh, here was the tweet. For parents with kids heading back to school, families will not be notified of any COVID outbreak until a principal records a 30% absenteeism among staff and, or students or staff and students and consult your local public health unit. It's at that time a directive will be sent. Uh, so your thoughts on that? We did touch on this earlier that it's just simply we don't have the resources to, to do it all. You've got other work to do. Your thoughts on this and, and why 30%? Yeah, I think it's an important discussion because we've talked about this last time that we have set an expectation in public health with school boards around creating such an expectation that every time there's a confirmed positive case that uh, the ministry has asked us to uh, confirm it, report it, and contact trace. And part of that contact tracing, again, public health has been incredible through this, has required our school leaders then to connect 
uh, with families and cohorts. And um, I said to you last time, in the third wave we experienced last spring, I saw at times that we had school principals, depending if there was outbreaks, that that was what they were doing, like almost full time. Yeah. I wondered how long we could could sustain this. So I think as I heard the, the uh, Dr. Moore say today, we have some history from H1N1 where when I was a principal, we had to track our attendance rates. So the ministry said they were going to require us, the memo still to follow, reporting our daily attendance rates to the ministry. And if we reach a 30% threshold, that's been determined, I guess, by the science table of absenteeism of students or staff, that we need to talk to public health to talk about, is that a reflection of a higher um, spread within that community? And should we close the school down or not? So we're waiting for the memo, but that's my understanding of clarity of teleconferences I, I received today. Is this a good solution considering where we are? Are you happy with this? Well, what I'm pleased with that there's some level of uh, transparency with the community and reporting of at least attendance. So we need some kind of tracking to go from very intense, detailed tracking to nothing uh, doesn't, doesn't build up public confidence. And even our school leaders were very worried about this. Uh, in the absence of, of nothing, uh, we're left holding that torch, wondering what, what we say to parents. So I, I think it's, it's better than nothing. But I think the real question I think I've heard from some parents as well is around the access to rapid antigen tests and some of those new measures. So I just wanted to, you know, to manage expectations that we have received, Scott, our N95 mask for staff. But what we're still waiting for is, is the optional three-ply mask for students. And the rapid antigen tests, um, we were told that our board will receive them Monday. So just receiving them centrally and getting them out to every school. So each, you know, you heard today, each family can have two and each staff member can have two. Uh, it's going to take time. So, you know, they won't be there Monday, first thing, because uh, logistics of getting them out to schools, once we haven't received them as of, as of yet, it's going to take time. But uh, I'm glad our students are coming back. And I, you know, I'll say this, I wish they had come back on, on, on January 5th, to be honest. That's, that's really wish, what I hope, because um, I think you heard January 3rd that the key metric was going to be hospitalization rates and ICUs, and we've heard that that's actually higher than it was as of January 3rd. So for me, I think we, sh- we should have just had students come back and address some of the challenges along the way. And, and work through the logistics of it. But people are already complaining, Manny, people are already complaining that there won't be masks there for Monday, and you're talking about addressing along the way. And I'm just playing devil's advocate here, uh, Manny. I know it's a huge balance, but uh, yeah. it seems like even with what you're saying, everybody wants everybody to be tested, but they just don't understand we don't, A, have the tests, or B, have the manpower to do it. There's just not. It's like the toilet paper of the, uh, of the first wave. Yeah, what we do have, we have the PCR kits, that were given to us late December, yeah. so, uh, about 10%. But that's just a bridge. They'll be at schools, but that's only for people who are symptomatic in person. But, you know, they won't last long. Um, but the rapid antigen test kits, um, we're told our shipment's supposed to come Monday. And the reason I say this, Scott, is I worry the fourth time. So I always think about the cost-risk analysis of the, of the pandemic in terms of students, of, you know, obtaining the virus versus the cost risk around the mental health, mm. opioid crisis, you know, um, some of the other real well-being concerns. And, and um, 
to me, students in schools, I always wonder if we are, I guess the question I would leave, if we are determined education is an essential service, then what would it look like to resource that essential service? Interesting. Manny Figueredo with us, Director of Education, Hamilton Wentworth District School Board, as they prepare for Monday back to class. Manny, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Good luck. Thank you very much, Scott. Take care. Catch up on the news and information you've missed. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Poll question of the day you'll find on our Twitter page, Adults in Quebec, anti-vaxxers are going to be taxed if they don't get the job. Should Ontario do the same? Wow, 60% of you in our very unofficial poll are saying yes. Uh, let's bring in Dr. Carrie Bowman, bioethicist with the University of Toronto and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, I am well indeed. I'm happy uh, to have this difficult conversation. <laughs> first of all, are you surprised the attention this is getting? This is being talked about all over the world. It really is. And you're right. It is getting attention well beyond Canada. And um, and I think a lot of people outside of Canada, including inside, are very surprised that Canada, and it's not Canada, it's one province, but, you know, in Canada, uh, would go in this direction. Um, you know, it's very surprising when, when the idea was floated about sort of mandatory vaccines a week ago. You know, what wasn't clear to me, or I think anyone, is what give me a definition of what that means. And I think this is the definition that we have for now. Um, you know, I'm going to look at this through an ethics lens, and I'm sure that's why you invited me. I see lots and lots of problems with this. Um, and I know people's patience with the, the unvaccinated is so thin right now. People would do just about anything uh, to push vaccinated people into this. But, you know, when we think of it, you know, so there's going to be a fine. We don't know how much. It's more than 100. I'm guessing, and I stress I'm guessing, I do not know. Maybe let's imagine somewhere around 500. You know, we don't know in this 10% of Quebecers that are unvaccinated, we're kind of going on the assumption that they're all kind of radical hotheads. Um, we don't know that. And I suspect, you know, that there's vulnerable people amongst those groups. I also su- suspect there's some deep cultural differences and misunderstandings that are going on as well. And, you know, when we start finding people and, you, you, you know, if you've got people living in poverty, you've got people that the healthcare system has worked against, and we have evidence that that absolutely happens. Um, you know, we're, you're compounding the problem. And look, here's another big worry I have. So we're told with Omicron, and I, I don't doubt this, that, you know, first jab, not so good. Second jab, not so good. I mean, with Omicron, uh, we all need boosters, which is, of course, a third. So unvaccinated, by definition, means zero, right? So, and there's a timeline. You can't be vaccinated a day apart. That does not happen. And that timeline is six months, seven months, eight months, who knows, something like that. So if the Quebecers were to line up tomorrow for this, this 10 percent, we're still six, seven, eight months away before they even reach a third dose. So how useful is that? So let me ask you this, because I think the attitude on this is changing. I don't think this is a, I don't think this is no longer this is no longer about COVID-19 and the dangers of COVID-19. This is about an inadequate health care system that is collapsing two years into a global pandemic. Is this a distraction? Is this discussion still about how dangerous COVID-19 is to us or how dangerous it is that we have a health care system that is in a desperate need for a funding formula change? And even if we get 100 percent of Canadians vaccinated, we're still going to have the same problem with health care. 
Yeah, no, and you may be very right. And, you know, the, the truth is it's probably a combination of the two. The, you know, and, and this is not lost on the public. The fact that we're two years in and we've known for two years we're in a pandemic. Yes, we have this awful flood. But, you know, it could have been a lot worse than Omicron in terms of, you know, uh, lethality and all, all the other factors and morbidity, mortality, those types of things. Um, so it may be. I think Omicron will change everything. You know, I, I think we give it a couple of weeks and, you know, we may stop turning on the unvaccinated and we might start turning on our leaders. Um, and, you know, I, I'm getting the feeling that people have really had enough of the country being run by epidemiologists as well. Um, and, you know, I'm not criticizing that. We, we did what we had to do, but I, I find people are coming to an end point. But look, I do not think this is the solution. I don't think it's effective. And good ethics is based on good science. I'm not the least bit convinced it's effective. And I also think from an ethical point of view, it's very difficult. And, you know, we also have to ask who we are as a people in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedom. Is this really our values that we would do something like this? And to implement these fines, so how do you do it? I have no idea. I'm guessing when I say this, too. Hand it over to what? Revenue Quebec? Uh, Revenue Canada? Yeah, it'll be something the province... <laughs> exactly. Who knows? What about the Prime Minister's reaction to this? Because when he was oh, asked, I he was on the know. fence. He said, we got to wait for the details. Like, what kind of details are you waiting for? No, I know. I, I was, boy, I was a bit surprised by that. I, I thought he'd take a position, and he really didn't. And I, I, I think he, he's not convinced it's a bad idea. But look, from a political point of view, as you said in your intro, 60%, I would have thought it's higher, actually. People are ready to do just about anything against unvaccinated people, and they've become a lightning rod. And, and it's very wise for a politician to do this from a political point of view. But what I would say, you know, politicians should not be creating categories of us and them. When you look at what human nature is and what we're capable of, us and them is not something you want to feed. It's dangerous and it's wrong for a politician to do that. And, you know, I'm going to say something you and maybe several people have heard me say a lot of times. This is not the biggest threat to us. The biggest threat to us is the global pandemic, which we are doing next to nothing about. Where did Omicron come from? Where did Delta come from? You know, if we carry on like this, we're all going to have a big lesson in the Greek alphabet and get nowhere. Uh, again, we're, we're focusing on the unvaccinated and taking the attention off the politicians and their policy. It just seems bizarre. Dr. Kerry Bowman with his bioethicist with the University of Toronto. Fascinating discussion, Kerry, and it's not over yet. Thanks so much. Be well. You're very welcome. Take care. So I'm in the media, you know, and I've been in the media for actually uh, earlier this month. I celebrated my 38th year uh, in the media, which uh, is surprising to me as well as you, I'm sure. And, you know, I've been pretty proud of, of what we've been accomplished over the years, uh, meaning me. And, and, and I'm very proud of the industry that I'm in until recently. And it's got to the point where even I'm questioning what is going on. Uh, because I, I think I, I'm watching a lot of people just go on uh, TV or radio or social media, whatever, and just scream hysterics and ask questions that there are no answers to or we don't know, rather than getting answers to questions we do know, or, or sorry, answers to questions we can get uh, answers to. Is the media doing its best to answer your questions that you're asking, or... Are we asking questions that we know cannot be answered and thus creating more confusion than clarity just to stoke a good story? Are we being, uh, are we being like the public or are we being media? 
Let's bring in Jeffrey Dorkin, Senior Fellow at Massey College, former Director of Journalism at the University of Toronto and author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Jeffrey, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing just fine, Scott. I hope you are as well. Yes, thank you. Am I barking up the wrong tree here? I'm just getting the, ses- the, the, the feeling I'm hearing more sensationalism than I am actually getting answers uh, to questions. And I, and I can think uh, of examples, you, you know, for example, the kids going back to school um, and reporters screaming, we don't have this, we don't have that, we don't, or putting somebody on who doesn't have this or doesn't have that or doesn't need the information or have the information as opposed to giving them the information and and creating more hysteria and and stoking confusion in a good story rather than clarity am i naive here am i missing something no i don't think you're missing anything i think we're all a little confused and part of the problem is is that our political and scientific leaders have been expressing a variety of ideas and opinions and so it becomes more difficult for journalism to say, all right, we need to understand it this way because this is the most credible set of circumstances, the most credible set of experts that we can uh, have access to. And instead, um, I I think the media in general is doing the best job it can under very confusing circumstances. We're seeing in Ontario, Uh, a kind of whiplash back and forth. Are we going to do this? Are we going to do that? Then the government says, we're going to do one thing. And then two days later, they say, we'll do something else. And so that makes it much more complicated for the media to present the story in some kind of accurate context that is reliable. Let me use that that example, Jeffrey. Let me use that example, Jeffrey. Let me use that example. Uh, because for, you know, for example, schools and such, we don't know what we're going to do. We don't know if we have this. We don't know if we have that. We don't know what's going on. Well, it's a fluid pandemic. It's been that way through the whole thing. So rather than reporting, so everybody's saying plan for this and plan for that as opposed to just highlighting that we don't know. It's the same thing we're seeing with testing and reporting testing at schools. And I just had the head of of the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board on and said, we don't have the capacity. We don't have principals that can just go up and follow and track and trace everybody because so many people are now affected. So instead of reporting that we're saying why don't we have this why don't we have well we just don't have the capacity it's like the toilet paper issue of way back when and yet that's what we're focusing on rather than the answer well i think that's exactly right and scott you you put your finger on the problem which is it's very hard to give people contextual information when it doesn't really exist in any consistent way and the other problem is and i think this is sort of a a secondary aspect to the problem is that it, my impression is that, that uh, the media <laughs> uh, loves this story because it is constant, it's ongoing, it raises everybody's blood pressure. Um, and instead, what we need to have, in my opinion, is a set of uh, points of, points of documentation that tells us which direction this pandemic is heading. What we're seeing, what I'm reading in various newspapers is 
X thousands of people in the last 24 hours in Ontario have uh, been diagnosed with COVID. There's no indication as to whether that is a rise or mm. a fall or a, a steady state. I, you have to dig down fairly far into the reporting to discover that we may have reached the peak of, of, of the pandemic. Yeah. It's starting to ho hollow out a little bit, to, to settle down a little bit. Now, whether this is a false flag, you know, this is an er too early an indicator that things are finally going to change, we don't know yet. I think the media, which has done in many respects a very good job, given the limited information or the conflicting information that it has access to, it, it's now time to start giving people a little bit of hope or a little bit of direction to say, here's what's happening in other places in the UK and in South Africa. Is this about to happen in Canada? And it seems to me that that's the missing element in the story that the people really need. Uh, I, I can think of it at the beginning of this pandemic, uh, before we had vaccine, first wave, and it was hitting the long-term care homes, particularly hard, obviously. And I remember one reporter, I won't name him, but from CTV asked the premier, do you feel you've got blood on your hands because of what's been happening in the first wave in long-term care? And I'm thinking to myself, blood on your hands this is a global pandemic not a serial killing i mean it just seems so inappropriate well i think this is this is also a difficulty in these fraught times where people are very anxious and and to a certain extent some media not all media are in the business of creating a kind of moral panic because there is a uh, I'm sorry to sound so cynical about this, but I think that there is a business reason for hyping the anxiety in the, of the public because there's a theory that if people are concerned, they will keep reading and tuning in and, and going online. But in fact, the opposite may be yeah. happening. I think we're seeing now people are starting to say it's all too much. It's not changing. I'm going to take a digital holiday from the media and stop, as they say, doom scrolling online, because a lot of the coverage is very um, inappropriate, in my opinion. And what it's, advice, not helping, it's not helping people. What advice do you have for us in the media trying to negotiate this? I would say what I've said to my students was it's fine to tell the story as it exists, but you also have an obligation, if at all possible, to give your readers, listeners, and viewers some hope. Where is this going? Are there any indicators that this is about to end? Are there some success stories out there? And the other thing is, is that we still have conflated, or at least the media seems to be conflating, um, Omicron with Delta. Those yeah. are two quite different uh, examples of COVID-19. And um, I, ha I have uh, friends who, who have uh, got Omicron and within two to four days, they're fine. Yeah. It's like a bad cold. But the numbers seem to indicate that we are awash 
in this in this virus and it looks terrible when in fact it's not as bad as it once was certainly a year ago i will take that advice uh jeffrey dvorkin senior fellow massey college former director of journalism at the U of T, and author of trusting the news in a digital age jeffrey thank you for the time and insight much appreciated be well my pleasure, Scott. You, you be well, too. We have been assured uh, by uh, the Quebec government uh, that they uh, intend to stand by the principles and the rules around the Canada Health Act uh, as they move forward. So uh, we, uh, we continue to wait to look for details on this. The details will be important in how this works, uh, how it balances uh, the values and the rights that we all cherish as Canadians with the necessity of keeping people safe. There's the Prime Minister supporting authoritarianism. Um, It's absolutely amazing. Quebec can, you know what, Quebec's like Donald Trump. Quebec can shoot a gun down the middle of the St. Lawrence River and nobody will give a damn, Uh, including the Prime Minister. Uh, uh, That is the Prime Minister speaking in regard to uh, being asked about Quebec uh, taxing those that refuse to get uh, vaccinated, an anti-vax tax. As they say, let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the news and columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. And with us now, Scott, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Doing fine, Scott. Thanks. Uh, are you a, are you a surprised at the amount of attention this has? The Quebec uh, anti-vax tax has become a worldwide story. The Prime Minister uh, just giving a very vague, non-committal, wishy-washy answer. What are your thoughts on his reaction and just the reaction of the world? Let's just talk about the politics here for a second, if I can. Because I was listening to that, and I'm thinking, you know, uh, some months ago, there was a poll done. I can't remember who did it. And it asked people, you know, would you feel comfortable moving to Alberta? Ask Canadians, you know, because Alberta's, you know, different style of life than some other places in Canada. And it was something like 50% of Canadians said, no way, not that's not for me. Well, more recently, somebody said, well, wait a second, we should do the rest of the poll. And let's ask about, and you may have seen this, and said and asked about all the different provinces. Like, which province would you feel comfortable moving to? Way, way, way down, dead last by a mile. I think it was 25% or something of Canadians said they'd feel comfortable moving to Quebec. Yeah. And so you've got that. So clearly there's differences in the country. You've got Bill, what is it, Bill 21 with the religious things where... Most Canadians, many Canadians, think this is an outrage. Now you've got this that a lot of people are saying, yeah, you know, I'm not sure about this. What I don't get, Scott, how come all the political party leaders continue to quake at the suggestion of criticizing Quebec when you I know. Would think... It's, it's like criticizing think, China. Yeah, but you would think that one of them would look at this and yeah. say, wait a second, there's a lot of Canadians that disagree. I may lose votes in Quebec, but I could gain a ton of votes elsewhere in the rest of the entire country. Where, Where is the leader who is looking at the big picture saying, so I lose three or four seats in Quebec, but I gain 12 elsewhere? I don't, I don't get why everybody walks on eggshells. I really don't. Um, nobody, ha- nobody does this. Uh, you know, I mean, they're talking about it in Greece. They're talking about it in, in other parts of, of Europe where they have a lower vaccination rate than they do, than we do certainly here in Ontario. Uh, this is something that reminds me of the Chinese Communist Party, not Canada. Is anybody, is anybody making that comparison? Is anybody seeing that this is 
authoritarian. Well, I mean, look, it, you know who's going to we're going to see who's going to raise this. Somebody in Quebec, inevitably, somebody is going to challenge this in court. Somebody will. It, it, I mean, I'd be shocked if if this did not receive a yep. court challenge because someone's going to say, "I'm not doing this, and you can't make me." And this is not, as you say, this is not within the the rules of Canada. I mean, remember, I think you and I may have discussed this the other day, but it was, you know, a few a year or two ago when our prime minister wouldn't even criticize. You know, you you don't have if you're a terrorist, you're a Canadian. Yeah. So you know, a Canadian is a Canadian. We're not going to take away their passports, but. A vaxxer, a person who doesn't want to get vaccinated, well, they're not really a Canadian. I mean, look, these are weird days we're living in. And again, I think this is all a distraction, Scott. This is a distraction to cover up the fact that we've got a healthcare system, which everybody brags about, which is falling apart. And this isn't the people that work in it. This is the system, an inadequate funding formula that the federal government only contributes less than 25% uh, to when they used to pay half. To me, this is the ultimate distraction. They want to be angry at somebody. They don't want to be angry at uh, the politicians don't want them angry at them, so they'll focus the issue on the 10% that are going to that are going to fix this. I mean, if all 100% of Canadians got vaccinated, we still have a terrible health health care problem. Well, you know, there's another question here, too, and that is, you know, there are signs and I don't want to be playing a doctor here. And so, you know, I don't want to say something way out of turn, but there are signs, it seems, that Omicron we're hearing is going to peak maybe by the end of this month and then begin its descent. Um, if I'm wrong, then I apologize, but that's what I've been reading. And, you know, if, if, if this is the last wave of this for a while, is this discussion going to phase out? Because what happens if we get down to numbers that are not that big? Are we still going to be going around demanding that everybody who hasn't been vaccinated get vaccinated or pay some ongoing tax if you're in okay. Quebec, some fee? I mean, what happens if this isn't a big issue? What, uh, that, do, are we still going to demand if this thing is gone that uh, that that you know you're going to have to continue to do all these things and then if you held out long enough do you just have you just ridden it out so you don't have to do it like this? There's Intercom. so many questions with this. There's so many questions and and right now I think you've got leaders like Legault who you know what what's the harm? Let's just throw it out there and let's see what happens. And if my poll numbers go down, well, I can always change my mind. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. All right, uh, we got to run. We're playing out of time, Scott. Uh, Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show and columnist with your Hamilton Spectator, uh, which is coming up right after the 6 o'clock news. Scott, thanks so much. Uh, as always, oh, thank Thank you too. Also, Will and Di- or and Lisa and Dave for helping out today. Coming up next, it's the CHML uh, news and, of course, uh, the Scott Radley show. As always, we leave it to you, the good listener, to have the last word. Why the federal government, uh, you know, uh, opposition parties included, could work together so quickly for one percent of the population, and they cannot work together for the 99% of the people with a health care problem. Good point.